Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. With me today is Natalie Kimball, an assistant professor of history at the College of Staten Island, which forms part of the City University of New York. They will be talking about their new book, An Open Secret, The History of Unwanted Pregnancy and Abortion in Modern Bolivia, which is out this year from Rutgers University Press. An Open Secret traces the history of unwanted pregnancy in urban highland Bolivia since the 1950s and emphasizes the role of women in shaping policies, services, and attitude changes in this time. Thank you, Dr. Kimball, for joining us today. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Kimball, um, and, and let's get started. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. So let's start with a little bit about who you are as a scholar and how you came to this really interesting project. Sure. Um, Yeah, I think it was sort of a confluence of a variety of different things that, you know, looking back, kind of turned into the project and in a way that seems to make sense. But at the time, I would have no idea that that's the direction I was heading. Um, I started, I studied Latin American studies at the University of Washington. So I'm from Seattle. And um, at the time I knew, you know, only that I was really interested in Latin America. Um, I'd studied Spanish from a pretty early age as soon as they offered it. I was probably in middle school when I started studying. And, you know, as I continued to study Spanish in middle school and high school, I just got more and more interested in Latin America. And, uh, but I didn't have like a firm grounding in any particular discipline. So I chose this interdisciplinary program in Latin American studies where I could dip my toe into things like history and literature and culture and economics and migration. Um, and so the, the things about Latin America that really gripped my attention, I think, were the history really of social movements, um, there, as well as, you know, as I became, as I started to learn more about it, a really troubling history of sort of U.S. interventionism in Latin America. Um, so these were areas that, you know, I, I come from a progressive city and a progressive family, and these are things that just interested me. And then um, my third, probably around my third year of undergraduate work, I ended up um, going to Argentina for a study abroad program. So I was studying at the Universidad de Buenos Aires, which is their national university system. Um, And uh, I just continued to learn. It was really super interesting. It had this really strong kind of Marxist orientation at the time. And um, uh, so I kind of was doing the same sort of thing, dipping my toe into different types of disciplines. And then on my kind of summer vacation from the year that I spent studying abroad, um, I traveled around the region. And one of the places that I went to was Bolivia. Um, and I went to a number of different cities, but I kind of got caught there in the midst of what would become the water war. So I was there in January of 2000. Um, the water war kind of uh, 
became uh, like the culmination was around April, I think, of that year of 2000. And um, so everywhere that I was going in Latin America was witnessing like social movements and activism and sort of a level of consciousness about social and political issues that I just wasn't seeing in my daily life, even in a place like Seattle. And all of that was really moving to me. But I think that the experience in Bolivia that most kind of cemented my interest in that region is not only the, the fact that um, the population is so diverse and, you know, the, the majority of the population is of indigenous descent. And that was um, just really interesting to witness and experience. But um, I also went to Potosi and as many of the tourists do, went on one of these tours of the mining center. Um, so I went inside a mine and um, kind of learned a little bit about the the Theo, which is one of these Andean deities that exists inside the mines. And that uh, led me to continue to read and study about that when I got back, um, both to Argentina and then finishing up my degree at the University of Washington in Seattle. And so following finishing my, my BA, I ended up going to Bolivia for a year um, on a Fulbright grant. Um, and my proposal was to live in a variety of different mining centers and do research on kind of the relationship between gender ideologies, uh, labor and work regimes, and then religious beliefs, because I was really influenced by the work of an anthropologist named June Nash, who had done some work in mining communities. And she traces this history of this very militant working class group. Um, and at the time, I, I found that very inspiring. But on the other hand, I was troubled by how much sort of um, evidence of gender discrimination, domestic violence, um, uh, kind of resistance to women's organizing that happened in that history in the 60s, 70s, and 80s in Bolivia. And I just wanted to kind of look at the connections between these various things. So for the year of 2003, I lived in Bolivia. Um, mostly, I had a home base in the city of La Paz, but I traveled, spent most of my time traveling and living in mining centers, particularly Potosí, um, Yayagua, uh, Siglo XX, Catavi, and Atocha in the south. And uh, I that was the first time. It was the second time, actually, that I'd interviewed people. I had interviewed people at, during a research project in Argentina, but I did extensive interviews in Bolivia at that time, found it super interesting. Um, and I think that that's one of the first times, too, that I, when I was interviewing women about kind of their daily lives working in these mining communities, um, that's where I started hearing about, you know, um, women, when I would ask them in general what their challenges were in daily life, one of these was having far more children than they, you know, um, wanted to in some cases or had the capacity with the resources available to them to take care of. Um, so, you know, I completed my year in Bolivia and then I still had no uh, specific plans to go to graduate school or anything, but I came back to Seattle and I needed to find a job and I wanted a job where I continu could continue to speak Spanish. And just by almost complete coincidence, I ended up working in reproductive health care. So I got a job in 2004 at a reproductive health clinic that provided abortions in the city of Seattle. It was a clinic that I later realized is one of a, a kind of a 
group of nonprofit um, feminist-oriented clinics that started in the years just before Roe v. Wade, before abortion was legal, and it had this feminist orientation of kind of teaching women um, to um, become empowered about their reproductive health. Um, and it taught all of the people who work there essentially from the ground up, as long as you were pro-choice, you know, they trained us in everything that we needed to know. And um, we were all cross-trained. So I spoke both Spanish and English with our patients, but I did things ranging from like picking up the phone when people would call to find out more information about abortion or to make an appointment. Um, I sat with women during their abortion procedures. I gave them kind of orientation on what the procedure would be like. Um, I also assisted doctors during the facility or during the procedure um, and I worked as a surgical technician, which basically meant um, kind of some of the lab work associated with abortion care. So that's, you know, I, I, I worked in that field for three years in Seattle. And then, um, then I ended up going to the University of Pittsburgh, uh, where I did my graduate work. But during the summers in Pittsburgh, I continued working in abortion care. And it was working in abortion care that got me really interested in women's own feelings and experiences with reproduction, because um, I learned a lot of things that were surprising to me. You know, I had never um, I, I had never faced the experience of an unwanted pregnancy, but I had experienced the fear of that and had to c- confront the idea of maybe what I would do. And I was always pro-choice, but I wanted to, uh, the, my m- motives for going to grad school was like putting these ideas together and investigating women's experiences with unwanted pregnancy and abortion, specifically in Bolivia, um, which is an area I'd already kind of made some contact. I knew it was an issue there even before looking at the statistics um, of unwanted pregnancy and abortion there. And sort of, that was sort of what motivated me going into that um, at the University of Pittsburgh. That's fantastic. Um, and I can, you can really see how that, uh, that confluence of interests and practices that you have experience with um, informed this project. So what made you want to focus on La Paz and El Alto specifically? Um, well, f- first of all, once I started getting into a little bit of background research to do my, you know, like the overview proposal we do for our dissertation, I did see what a major issue unwanted pregnancy and abortion is in Bolivia in general. So they um, have the, um, um, among the highest rates of unwanted pregnancy and abortion in the region, which is not surprising considering Bolivia is also among the poorest. We see that kind of um, correlation a lot, right? Some of the poorer countries have highest rates of, of unwanted pregnancy and abortion. So I knew it was already an issue. And then I think that I probably focused on La Paz at the beginning because I had already had some experience there. Um, I had lived there before. I was familiar in general with the cultural landscape. I did have some contacts in La Paz too, because during the year that I had lived there before, um, one of the things that I did was, you know, I volunteered um, kind of just like as a library research assistant person, like in some of the libraries, the small community-based libraries that existed in La Paz run by either women's organizations or minors um, empowerment organizations. And I would do work for them in exchange for having access to some of their materials. So I had already made some contacts with people there. And, um, and, 
logistically, it was easier to study these issues for me in urban areas. Um, I was fluent in Spanish by this point. Um, I had had two years of Quechua training at the University of Pittsburgh because that of the indigenous languages that are spoken in Bolivia, that's the one that was offered um, at um, the University of Pittsburgh. There was a little bit of Aymara offered at my university, but the professor there was quite clear that she didn't have, didn't speak it with fluency and didn't feel comfortable passing that on. And so I had no Aymara training, which is the language most commonly spoken, indigenous language most commonly spoken in La Paz. And, you know, I had just very conversational Quechua training, which would have not been that useful in La Paz anyway. But um, so I was sort of limited in that respect to urban areas. The confluence of Andean and Western medical traditions in these two cities was really interesting to me. Um, I felt like I didn't, I felt like it was irresponsible in some ways to try to investigate a phenomenon like this of unwanted pregnancy and abortion just in La Paz. Um, I was very interested in the city of El Alto, um, in part because so many of the people who live there are migrants from rural areas. And so I knew that if I had some contacts there and interviewed people there, I would learn more about um, perhaps Andean ideas and practices around pregnancy and abortion. Um, so I just decided to focus on those two cities to work and work with my own, um, you know, my Spanish ability. And then I did end up um, working with an, uh, a research assistant who was a history student and she speaks fluent Aymara and she transcribed my interviews and also helped me kind of interpret cultural issues and any questions that I had that would come up during the course of trying to interpret some of the interview testimony, because I did all of the interviews in Spanish, but some of those Spanish speakers, their language was really influenced by like Aymara um, syntax and ways of speaking. And she was helpful with that. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's, let's talk then about um, how you used oral history, because you, you've conducted extensive interviews, um, it sounds like throughout your academic career. Um, and this book is, is based on a lot of interviews with women. Um, so, but these are topics that can be sort of difficult to get people to talk about. So how did you approach interviewing people around things like unwanted pregnancy? Yeah. Um, it definitely is a sensitive theme and, um, and I wasn't sure exactly what I would get, you know? I mean, I knew that because of the statistical data that exists that is investigating this thing or trying to measure this thing called unwanted pregnancy, um, you know, I knew that I was likely, if I talked to women, to eventually run into people who had experienced that, right? But um, basically, when I approached people to interview, I did so just by saying that I was interested in hearing about women's experiences with pregnancy, because I also didn't want to approach someone and say, have you ever had an unwanted pregnancy? Or I'm interested in talking to people about unwanted pregnancy, because um, I feel like it's logical to think that, you know, if somebody faces a pregnancy that at the time they didn't really want or it wasn't intended, if they continue that pregnancy, they're not necessarily going to look back on that as unwanted because they have this living child with a distinctive personality and they've, you know, um, grown to feel 
um, much love for it, even if it wasn't, you know, the best or most opportune moment. So um, in order to kind of make contact with women in this way, I ended up partnering, partnering with three different organizations. Um, there were two in La Paz and one in El Alto. And these groups held uh, workshops of a variety of kinds. Um, they taught women how to do a variety of different types of crafts, like knitting and macrame. Um, some of them had workshops on like um, how to talk to your husband about certain things or, you know, sort of like gender relations, um, health within partnerships, and then also some workshops on like reproductive health, um, uh, contraceptive methods. Um, there were, so these three organizations had these workshops that were spread out in various areas of the city. So what I would do is I would go to the workshops and participate just like everybody else, um, every week. And I would, every time I was there, you know, I, I would be, um, I would introduce myself, but I was very much assisted in this by like the facilitators of these little workshops who would introduce me. They would that kind of by introducing me, they would essentially vouch for me, but, um, and they would say that I was looking for people that I was interested in interviewing about their experiences with pregnancy. But I think that part of the importance of that um, approach was that I participated alongside the women in whatever I learned. I already knew how to knit, but I did knit, work on knitting projects. I did other sorts of, I learned how to do other types of crafts I did not have experience with. So I just tried to integrate as much as I could into the groups. And then um, slowly over time, people would you know, volunteer to be interviewed and we'd move to another room to do the interview privately. Um, and then what I assume took place is that some of those women after those interviews would end up uh, kind of going back to the group and talking to other women and kind of talking to them about what I had asked them. And um, when I was actually talking to women, I just, I, I started kind of with a, what we call an oral history, a life history approach. So I would ask them about where they um, grew up and where they were, what their childhood was like, what their parents did, what sort of, how many siblings they had. And then I would ask about, you know, if they had um, romantic relationships growing up or boyfriends or girlfriends and um, what that was like for them. And um, with most of the women, you know, most of the women had been pregnant. Um, so I just asked, you know, how, how did you become pregnant the first time? What was that like for you? What did you feel? And um, I just kind of allowed women to tell me about what their experiences were. Um, and sometimes people told me directly that, you know, yeah, I got pregnant. I didn't want to be. I sought an abortion or I tried to have an abortion or, you know, and um, sometimes they didn't. And I, then I would ask directly, have you ever had a, a, an experience where you got pregnant where you didn't want to? Um, or have you ever, sometimes I would ask, have you ever met anyone who's had an abortion? And, you know, what do you know about that? And sometimes in kind of approaching the subject that way, people would share with me their own experiences. But I do believe that part of my, um, Certainly, I, I certainly felt comfortable talking about these topics because I had done it so many times before with hundreds of women in Seattle and Pittsburgh. So um, I felt I knew that I did not judge. Um, I tried to convey that in my manner. And um, 
And I just tried to follow women in terms of the direction that they wanted to take the conversation, which sometimes meant that I did not come away from that interview with usable material. You know, I, I certainly have had experiences of going into an interview, trying to ask a woman about her experiences with pregnancy, and she really needed to talk about something else. And uh, so that's what we talked about. Um, and I'm not a therapist, you know, I have no training in that. But like, I just tried to remember that I'm a human first. And I, you know, I was there to, to listen to them. And, um, uh, and I mean, they all knew, you know, in terms of informed consent, like everyone knew about the purpose of why I was doing this, um, that it was for a thesis for a doctoral program, that all of the interviews would be con conducted anonymously. I don't identify in the book, um, the three organizations that I worked with to prevent any sort of triangulation of like who these individuals were. I changed everybody's um, first and last names. Most of the women, I did not actually even know their last names, but I recorded information on their ethnic backgrounds so that I could ma maintain or create a pseudonym of a last name that would be similar to the name that they, um, the, eth the ethnic kind of background of the name that they had. Um, so that was my approach with, uh, with women, um, in terms of my approach with other individuals. So people from like the police sectors, medical doctors, nurses, um, activists, both, um, who were against abortion and activists who were trying to fight for abortions legalization. I sort of used a snowball method where I met through the organ, one of the organizations that I was working with, you know, I, would ask for names of medical personnel and then um, just go from there and just have um, have them tell me about other people who might be willing to be interviewed. And over the course of, you know, it took a good, I was there for, a, for about 13 months and I did um, 113 interviews in that time. So it took time, you know, and I had, you know, I was fortunate to have support, fellowship support to be able to stay in Bolivia for that long to do that, those interviews. I really appreciate how you foregrounded some of the really, really important practices with oral history. Um, first of all, just how much time it really does take because you have to show up, you have to build relationships, you have to listen, um, and not everyone is going to have your priorities. Um, and you just fundamentally have to build trust and be transparent about that. This this conversation will be very helpful for researchers who are thinking about doing some kind of oral history or oral interviews as part of their practice. So do you have any other kinds of advice for anyone who's conducting oral interviews? Yeah, I mean, I would say that read everything you can of people who have used the method. Um, that was extremely helpful to me. So in my graduate program, you know, before we get to the dissertation phase, we do this uh, kind of the comprehensive exams. And I, I had some freedom to choose the books that I wanted to be quizzed on. And the some of the books that I chose with my alongside my advisors were like lots of oral history and then other disciplines who relied on oral history. So sociology and anthropology. So I got a chance to read a lot about the ways that people had approached these issues, including, um, I couldn't find a ton of material on people who had done interviews with, um, uh, with individuals at that time about abortion in 
context where abortion is illegal, but I did find some work about researching illegal themes in general and sensitive themes that was really helpful for me. Um, I also had one person on my dissertation committee who was a sociologist who conducted extensive oral interviews, Kathleen Blee. Um, So it was really helpful to read a lot, to talk to other people who had done it. So I some of the authors of the books that I read, you know, I'd reach out to them and see if they'd be willing to talk to me about their experience doing interviews. Um, and then, you know, nowadays, there are lots of training programs in oral history. And if you can do that, you know, seek one of these programs out. Um, because it's really helpful to have some direct training in the field. And then the other thing is, um, just be patient. Um, I think that it's important to to be really patient with yourself and with your narrators and to stay in communication with those people that you ha- are interviewing about um, how you plan to use their interviews, what details that you can share um, and what you cannot in anything that you publish or anything that you talked about. Um, and it's a really a collaborative process. And um, that's something that, you know, were I to do oral history again, which I would like to do, um, it, it's very challenging in certain places to do oral interviews with people and to maintain contact with them. Like um, in Bolivia, people, especially the population that I was interviewing, people move a lot. People at that time, most people did not have cell phones. They often didn't have um Uh, mailing addresses. It wasn't easy to get in touch with people. So I have lost contact with some of the people that I interviewed. Um, I would try to make more efforts to maintain those relationships. There's some that I'm in contact with, but many that I'm not. And I think that that would be helpful for any future work, you know, of like how an interview is to be used. But the, um, those questions of confidentiality and anonymity and, um, the correct sort of interpretation of someone's words, because that's also important. We don't want to do violence to our interview subjects by misinterpreting something they said. I think that all of that can be done in collaboration with the people that we're interviewing in, uh, you know, when, when at all possible. So that's the advice that I, I would mostly have. That's really helpful. Thank you. So let's talk about what you argue in the book itself. One of the things you argue is that women have shaped many of the changes in policies and services relating to unwanted pregnancy and abortion um, that are available or that pertain to um, women in La Paz and El Alto since the 1950s. So let's let's go through your early chapters and trace some of these changes. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the first things that I just try to unpack in some of the early chapters is um, this notion that at this point, if you know, if any of your listeners have read much in the history of um, sexuality and reproduction, it's really been demonstrated beyond any doubt that reproductive experiences and, and sexuality and stuff, these are not private phenomenon. They're really tied up with much broader questions of, of political and economic and social processes happening in these countries. So I try to make those connections first. So in the in the 50s and 60s under the MNR or the Movimiento Nacionalista Revolucionario which is that you know revolutionary party in Bolivia um the main concerns of policymakers that were linked to reproduction were like we they were really concerned with national progress and modernization um but they 
there are long histories of uh, discrimination and racism against indigenous populations, which was the majority of the population. And they really saw indigenous women as being sort of incapable or unfit of producing this healthy, robust population of citizens and modern farmers that would contribute to the development of Bolivia. So this really ends up leading to attempts to try to reform um, uh, indigenous women's mothering practices to make them more Western or so-called more hygienic in lines with ideas about eugenics. And, um, and, and also within that to subordinate Andean medical traditions, including things like midwifery um, and herbal remedies to the Western medical establishment and the obstetric establishment in particular. And their justifications for this was to reduce infant and maternal death and foster economic process, uh, progress and also just to grow the population of Bolivia because reformers at the time in the 50s and 60s were concerned like that Bolivia was underpopulated compared to some of the other Latin American nations. Um, this shifts, th- these sorts of concerns really shift in terms of um, because of the global context in the 60s and the 70s. So with the Cold War, a lot of international observers, but also some domestic reformers start to be concerned not about underpopulation, but about supposedly the overpopulation of places like Bolivia, but a lot of other places in the world um, populated by mostly um, poor people of either indigenous descent or African descent, um, people of color, um, because it was believed that these individuals uh because they were poor, would be susceptible to communist agitation. So there begins to be an emphasis on ways that these reformers can limit population population growth. And this involved kind of um, uh, cooperation with international organizations like the United States Agency for International Development or USAID, which sought to first investigate and then secondly try to distribute different forms of Western contraceptive methods to local populations. Um, In Bolivia in the late uh, 1960s, there was a really important episode with respect to this um, involving the United States Peace Corps. Um, So in the late 60s, there were allegations leveled by a local radio show that some of the volunteers of the Peace Corps had been sterilizing indigenous women who lived in the rural countryside without their knowledge or their consent. Um, This was publicized even further in a film by the Bolivian filmmaker Jorge Santines. The film is called Blood of the Condor um, in English. And this uh, was widely viewed both at home and abroad, like both in Bolivia and abroad. And it sparked a lot of fears about international um, interventionism, eugenics, um, efforts to control population. Um, There's a lot of work that's been done on this by a scholar named Molly Geidel, um, who kind of traces what we do know about population control. And while it appears that um, sterilization may not have been something that was certainly not widespread, it does appear that individual Peace Corps volunteers, either with or without the knowledge of the Peace Corps as a whole, was inserting IUDs into or intrauterine devices, which prevent pregnancy, into some indigenous women in the countryside without their knowledge or consent. So this, of course, leads to a major backlash um, on the part of 
national government administrations, but also a lot of civil society groups, um, indigenous activists and organizations that begin to associate contraception, um, rightly so, with sort of efforts, international efforts to control reproduction. But it also, at the same time, is putting women in a really difficult position because now women who want to try to control their reproductive lives um, have fewer options even to kind of talk about that. But this is all long before the real availability of birth control in Bolivia. Um, It was somewhat of a theoretical conversation that was taking place, but but it would have an impact on the kind of development of contraceptives later. So I've kind of just unpacked a bunch of context for you, but let's go back to this point about how did women actually shape policies and services. So what I argue in the book is that most of the changes that actually took place in terms of policies and services concerning unwanted pregnancy and abortion did so between the late 1980s and uh, the moment that I finished the research, which was like around 2000. And then I address some of the more recent policy changes in some of the later chapters of the book. But why that happened is essentially, um, first of all, with the Democratic opening in 1982, we see, um, you know, there was 18 years of military rule. And what that did was it really put, it prevented a lot of progressive organizing in a variety of different sectors, including urban women's groups um, that might be interested in questions of unwanted pregnancy or, or, or abortion, legalization, or anything like that. So at around 82, we start to see a plethora of all these organizations like becoming active. And um, some of them are doing like legal advocacy around certain things or empowerment of women in political spheres or concerns about health or domestic violence or a variety of things. But there's just a lot of women's organizations. And some of them also kind of emer- reemerge from the woodwork after being um, forced underground during the military period. And these groups, a lot of them are holding workshops and having forums and public events where women are starting to um, talk to one another, be able to engage in some sort of political organizing. Um, and all of this, both like the initiatives that they're following, the women's groups and the conversations informally that, that are taking place between women are opening conversations about gender and sexism or machismo, um, pregnancy, abortion, domestic violence. Um, and, So there's like a moment of kind of talking about this much more. Um, And later, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, these groups would would be very much involved in some of the advocacy work to make legal changes with respect to unwanted pregnancy and abortion. Um, But individually, or I guess you could think of it as like a collective of a variety of different individuals women are constantly making decisions, right, about their pregnancies throughout this period. So throughout this period, there's an ongoing demand on the part of women for abortion, regardless of the consequences. We know this because we see um, very high rates of maternal death that are related to abortion. So that means that women are going willing to go to any lengths to end a pregnancy, um, even if it means they're risking their own lives, which they often did. Um, and then we begin to see concrete changes happening like in the 90s and 2000s. And I'll just trace a couple of these. 
Um, one of them is uh, they women who are suspected of terminating a pregnancy who go to a Western medical facility um, are often faced mistreatment and discrimination. So the women would be interrogated. Sometimes women would be reported to police. Um, women would often be like um, insulted. They would say, why did you, uh, one of my interviewees literally said to me that she'd heard someone say, why did you open your legs if you didn't want to get pregnant? Um, and so th- there's discrimination against women who are, you know, seeking care following abortion. On top of that, there's discrimination against women, indigenous women who follow Andean medical traditions in general in Western health facilities. So there's a lot of mistrust of Western medicine, whether you had an abortion or didn't have an abortion and are seeking follow-up care. So there's a persistent refusal oftentimes of women to put up with this. So women were not going to healthcare facilities to seek follow-up care following um, like a, an incomplete abortion or a miscarriage when they were having complications. And this was leading to an increase in maternal death related to abortion. Um, this makes maternal mortality is one of the things that, that kind of cements a country's position on the world stage. Like it looks really bad if your maternal mortality rate is quite high. And um, how the state's response to this, rather than kind of attempting to legalize abortion, was to implement a program in 1998 called the Program for the Treatment of Hemorrhages in the First Half of Pregnancy. Um, so this means that there was a legitimate program for any woman who might have bleeding in the first half of her pregnancy to, to go get care at a medical facility. And the program trained medical professionals to provide um, sensitive, non-judgmental care it prohibited personnel from questioning women about the circumstances of their bleeding. And at the same time, here we see the confluence of like technological developments happening. It trains women or it trains medical personnel in the use of this manual vacuum aspiration device in English, often called the I-PASS. In Spanish, it's the AMEU or the Aspiración Manual Endouterina. So it's a plastic device that's safer device for both either doing an abortion, but also treating incomplete cases of miscarriage and abortion. And I really do emphasize that programs like that, that that would not have happened had women not refused to go to medical, seek medical care. Um, So we see that those sorts of shifts happen. And then also expansions in insurance programs to pay for these services. Um, in an attempt also to draw women into public health facilities and decrease maternal mortality. So there's a, the national, um, the women's health insurance in Bolivia um, pays for the use of this procedure, the AMIL procedure um, to treat cases of incomplete abortion and miscarriage, which drew more women into healthcare facilities and helped reduce cases of um, abortion related death. Um, And then I can speak really briefly about kind of the legal changes that have taken place. So there's a campaign called the 28th of September campaign for the decriminalization of abortion in Latin America and the Caribbean that's been active in um, Bolivia since the mid-1990s. And that was particularly after these international conferences regarding women in development in 1994 and 1995 in Beijing and Cairo. Um, Abortion has been... Uh, illegal in Bolivia. Um, There was one shift in the law in the 
early 1970s when the president changed the penal code from full and outright criminalization to allow the procedure in cases of rape, incest, or when a pregnancy threatened a woman's life or health. Now, in, in 1973, when that law was passed or that change to the penal code was passed, um, a woman had to have a judicial order that authorized her access to the procedure. Um, f- because of the way that abortion is stigmatized in Bolivia, in especially urban areas of Bolivia, few judges were willing to sign um, these authorizations. So most women would seek abortion through illegal channels, right? Just going to providers that they could find. And only a handful of legal abortions had ever been done um, until very recently. So in, in 2012, the MAS party or Movimiento al Socialismo, the, the deputy Pat- Patricia Mancilla um, introduced this measure that challenged the constitutionality of certain measures of the penal code. And this eventually resulted in 2014 in um, ending, abolishing the requirement for a judicial authorization in cases of legal abortion. Um, Since that time, women's access to those abortions that are legal has increased. So cases of rape, incest, and when it threatens a woman's um, life or health. But still, because of the kind of onerous nature of some of these legal processes, women still tend to... Um, seek abortion through um, other channels, but really those sorts of legal changes are things that have been the result of um, advocacy on the part of uh, women, you know, either in organizations or in this kind of collective way of making decisions about their pregnancies. This is such a great um, way of thinking about or or way of tracing how change actually happens on the ground, even in places where there are still lots of restrictions in place. And you can see the power that women have to to really shape um, what happens and move things forward. And and I really appreciate that about your book. Um, but I want to I want to go back a bit. This brings up something um, that you spoke about a few minutes ago. So. Your book is a history of urban practices and attitudes, and you're very clear on on who the kinds of people you are talking to. But it's not a history of exclusively of what some might term Western practices or technologies. So I want to talk a little bit about the overlapping medical systems that women have access to in the choices they make in La Paz or places like El Alto. Yeah, absolutely. Um so yeah, it is a it's an urban centered study in La Paz and El Alto. So, um, you know, in urban areas of Bolivia, we do see uh, more reliance on Western or clinical technologies um, for healthcare, as well as sort of ideas about healthcare and pregnancy and illness. Um, but they're definitely not hegemonic. These Western ideas, and many people in urban areas utilize Andean health practices, and they have a lot of ideas about pregnancy that. Um, can be considered Andean or um, non-Western. And as I mentioned before, like many of the women who live in El Alto in particular come from uh, rural areas. So I expected that I would see a lot of overlap in that when I was doing the interviews. Um, and both the interviews and the medical records have a, show a lot of evidence that women are using Andean practices um, such as herbal remedies to assist with pregnancy, um, a variety of other reproductive events, as well as abortion, 
Um, they also recur to midwives and healers. So these are things that people told me in the course of interviews or that I also saw evidence of in, in medical records. Um, and uh, sometimes these women do that and also visit Western medical facilities. Sometimes people do one to the exclusion of the other. Um, but it's sort of, um, uh, there's a variety of different, you know, practices that are uh, practiced and not necessarily in exclusion to one another, I guess, is, is what I want to say. So there's a really a pluralistic atmosphere of medical care in these cities. Um, the I try to, so I have what I have from primary data. And then I rely in the book on a ton of secondary data to try to contextualize that for people. Um, so there's been a wealth of material done, um, studies done by uh, particularly anthropologists in rural areas of Bolivia that have studied extensively reproductive practices and ideas about pregnancy and healthcare that I use as a way to just give context and flesh out some of the meanings behind people's um, ideas, you know, and uh, the traditions they rely on that come up in these other sources. Um, and uh, I mean, in terms of the variety of things that are available besides the Andean and Western clinical practices, which I trace both in terms of how they come up in primary data, but I also try to spend some time on the contest taking place between particularly this rise of the Western medical establishment and the obstetrical establishment and how that rise really depends upon attempts to subordinate Andean traditions, both midwifery, but then other um, long-standing traditions with a lot of centuries of science and knowledge like the Kayawayas or the Kawaiyus, which are um, kind of healing traditions of um, itinerant healers that have existed in the Andes for a very long time. Um, so I try to uh, talk about the how that kind of looked with respect to the state. Um, and in I trace that between the, you know, the entire period, so 50s up to 2010. In more recent years, what that looks like under Evo Morales, especially or since that time, you know, has been attempts to integrate um, traditional medicine into national healthcare systems. And um, none of this has been a smooth process. I mean, it's been, there's been contentiousness throughout it. Um, but I try to give some sense of like what's happening at the state level with these traditions, but then also just women's individual like practices and what I'm seeing in medical records and, and um, what literature I can direct you to to help you understand and contextualize um, some of that. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's very helpful. So your book has a lot of levels. You're looking at the policies at the level of the state, practices at the level of individuals and groups, um, legality and enforcement mechanisms. Um, but another thing you really focus on, specifically in Chapter 3, but also throughout, is, is the way women are feeling about unwanted pregnancy, about the choices they have. So what led you to center feelings in, in your book? I think probably a couple of things. On the one hand, I think, you know, my experience in abortion care clued me into some surprising things. Um, before I started working in abortion care, I don't think I understood that um, 
it, it could, that it's fairly common for a woman to say that she is against abortion. Um, but that she would still have one. So I, you know, I met women when I was working in clinical care that would say they were against abortion, but they still needed one. Um, so contradictions like that, um, I, I think are interesting in, in general and uh, they spark further need for investigation for me and, and maybe a certain degree of compassion. And, um, and I just, I think that, you know, working in, in that field clued me into this idea that there are many, there are many things that I do not know about another person's experience. And there's something really amazing about oral history where you have essentially, you know, to put it vulgarly, like we have the source, our source in front of us, and we can ask whatever we want to ask of that person. Um, you know, and if they're comfortable answering it, they can tell you in their own words how they felt about something. So I was, you know, trying to invite the possibility of more um, just being surprised, you know, by my sources, by these people who who experienced what they experienced. And um, as I hope that, you know, historians do, no matter what sources we're looking at, that we're like inviting uh, surprise. And, um, and, you know, I just became surprised. <laughs> That's what happened is that, um, first of all, you know, we have these terms that are statistical in nature, like unwanted pregnancy. That's something that, you know, Bolivian, the um, statistical studies that are based on health and demography, they collect information on um, pregnancies that were unwanted within the previous five years of someone's life. And they use this to determine unmet need for contraception. Um but when you talk to women about their experiences, uh, wantedness wasn't necessarily, you know, the most uh, commonly used term. You know, people would use a lot of terms like fear or surprise or shock or both happy and sad. Um, so I wanted to uh, leave space for that. And then you know, especially someone working in abortion care, of course, I was sort of educated and raised with this idea of pro-choice, um, you know, that we have the right to choose how to, um, to deal with uh, things that impact our bodies, etc. And when I started talking with women, um, I realized that that concept, it just didn't come up very much. You know, it wasn't something that women use. They didn't talk about feeling like they had a choice or feeling like they could make a decision. And, um, their feelings were, were really about, um, uh, inter like their feelings were often contradictory and there, there was a lot of ambivalence and they were very shaped by the reactions of people in their lives to their pregnancies, which in turn were shaped by economic circumstances and patriarchy and machismo and racism and a variety of other structural factors. So um, I feel like when we have sources like oral history available to us, um, we might as well listen to actual feelings and experiences with things like unwanted pregnancy, because it can especially in contentious issues like abortion might lead us to uh, changing the dynamics of our discussion a little bit um, to consider who we're actually talking about. You know, when we're talking about abortion rights or legalization, we're talking about actual living people who deal with these experiences. We might as well learn from them as much as we can.
And one of the things your book, um, I think, lays out a pl- pretty clear case for is is how thinking about abortion rights in terms of purely choice just tends to imagine a kind of isolated individual actor that doesn't really exist um, in a lot of ways. And so a lot of, as you, as you argue, the, the women that you're talking to, they're not just thinking about their own choices. They're thinking about all of the different things in their lives that are pressuring them or that are, are needs that they have. And um, it, I think your book is helpful in, in creating a framework for thinking about a way that women need and can demand access to healthcare that is not simply about a, a, a supposed moment of single free choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, you sort of, you, you think about ways to complicate rights-based activism and show how, especially in um, post-colonial states like, like Bolivia, um, but also many other places in the world, uh, rights is a fraught term and, and the, who has rights is not a straightforward in any sense subject. Um, so I, that's, that's a very um, abstract question, but I, I was wondering whether we could talk a little bit about how the book, as you see it, um, helps us understand issues that are not just pertinent to Bolivia. So what, what's the wider story? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th- I think I came to this, the question a little bit about choice and rights first by listening to the women. So I noticed, you know, that people very rarely said that they had chosen or decided to, to, to keep or to end a pregnancy. So they, as you mentioned, they said that there were all these varieties of things. So life circumstances or even occasionally people in their lives um, had made those decisions for them. And they used the word rather than choice or decision, they used the word obligar, so that they had been obliged or obligated to continue or terminate a pregnancy by any one of these numbers of factors. Um, and when I started, when I thought about that, first of all, I just, it's something that I noticed that like, oh, this is a failing in the way that we talk about abortion. Then when I began to kind of try to contextualize that and look into other geographical contexts where that seems to come up, um, I found it, you know, a wealth of material, particularly by activists and scholars in reproductive justice who who have really demonstrated time and again that the reproductive experiences of um, people, of poor people in particular, of color in the U.S., but also elsewhere in the world are constrained by a number of different things. So poverty, racism, um, structural violence, homophobia, sexism, or, you know, the, the history of like you international eugenicist efforts of population control. Um, and there's, so this, like this idea that you have the, a choice to confront a pregnancy or even a choice of whether or not to become pregnant or whether you're going to use birth control or even like, you know, there's been some interesting work on whether we even have a choice of sexual partner in given circumstances or whether some women actually do. There's all these varieties of factors that are constraining that. And, you know, when we look at the history of this idea of bodily choice, it, it really seems to have roots in this white um, middle-class feminist movement in the West. So 
it's linked on the one hand to these enlightenment era notions of liberalism and an individual's right to bodily autonomy. Um, and even the concept of women's rights is sort of rooted in a similar history. It's kind of about, um, um, women's, uh, rights, but very much as, as individuals too. Um, in Bolivia, um, the idea of women's rights and of individual bodily rights, it's really, um, perceived as Western and it's often linked then in people's minds and in real histories to experiences of imperialism. And this idea butts heads with ideas of, uh, like indigenous rights, which are really perceived as collective, not individual. And they're focused on ethnic justice and they center on demands of a community to land and autonomy. Um, and many indigenous activists can see women's rights as imperialist. Um, this is complicated by the fact that, you know, some women, um, including indigenous women believe, um, that, and, uh, you know, argue against the fact that women who are indigenous face discrimination, discrimination in their indigenous communities, or that indigenous communities aren't doing enough to protect the rights of their women members. Um, or they'll say, you know, indigenous women who are interested in having some degree of control over how many pregnancies they have, they might be seen as betraying the interests of their communities. So there's a real conflict in this perception. And it's something um, that we do see. Um, I think one of the sources I cite in, uh, in the book is um, a book by uh, David Murray about Barbados and, and how, um, you know, ideas of rights of gay and lesbian and transgender communities can be seen as imperialist because it's essentially a Western discourse in, in, and it can be for that reason, you know, seen as something very foreign. Um, and what I try to argue in this, in the book is that I think that any solution to, to this conflict between indigenous or women's rights, it, it must first kind of acknowledge the legitimacy of indigenous critiques of women's rights frameworks. And it must like that, that's real. And that occurs and it needs to be, um, we just need to see that as legitimate, but any solutions too need to sort of emerge from um, local context. And I think that, you know, just to circle back to the initial thing that you asked about, um, about, you know, broader histories of this, I think that um, there's a variety of ways in which the story in Bolivia, it jives very closely with the history of other um, post-colonial states. So um, first of all, there's, there's always a connection between women's reproductive lives and, uh, national ideas about national progress, national imaginaries. This has often led to attempts to control and to regulate women's practices. Um, this often goes hand in hand with a sort of pathologization or, um, you know, a description of these indigenous or Afro practices as somehow in need of improvement. Um, there, there's multiple overlapping medical systems in a lot of these places. And in many places, the efforts of the Western medical establishment to, to create some sort of dominance over non-Western forms, that has been uh, prevalent in many contexts. Um, yet when we actually look at people's experiences, most people's experiences with pregnancy and abortion and a variety of forms of healthcare are taking place outside of the bounds of state regulation. So um, 
you know, their attempts to regulate their practices are not always or very rarely fully successful. Um, and then we see these rights-based sorts of conflicts happening in a lot of different places. So I think that it's a story that um, can kind of lead us at least to find broader, more evidence of these sorts of um, issues taking place in a variety of contexts and maybe um, lead us towards some sort of um, openness to solutions that are coming from local contexts, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Are there, is there an anecdote or an episode from the book or from your research that you'd like to share with listeners? Is there something that you'd like them to really grab out of your book? Just want to give listeners a content warning for the story that follows, which contains descriptions of both a traumatic abortion and a sexual assault. If you would prefer not to listen to the descriptions in this segment, please skip ahead exactly six minutes and you will return to the more general discussion. You know, I think there are two things that I come away from this work with, and they're somewhat contradictory, but they are both, they both exist. One is I do want people to understand the remarkable resilience of humans attempting to better their lives. Um, and in this case, you know, we're talking about women just trying to control, have some say in their reproductive lives and, and to live health, healthily and happily with their families. Um, women went to really remarkable lengths to try to control their pregnancies. Um, but the other kind of darker side of this is what happens, right? When, when um, we have the criminalization of abortion or um, a lot of silence and stigma around talking about open conversations about sexuality and abortion. Um, and this is the anecdote that kind of most comes to mind right now, which is um, a woman who I interviewed in, in La Paz early in my research. I would say it was probably July 2009 or so when I did this interview. And she, you know, she was a actually relatively middle class um, on the higher socioeconomic spectrum of the women that I interviewed. Um, she was in her thirties at the time, but she'd, and she had two children. Um, they were both, uh, one I think was about eight, one was maybe about four, but she'd had abortions earlier in her life. And um, uh, one of the stories she told me really um, made a huge impression on me. So She's a woman who was born and raised in La Paz, but at, at one point, I think she already had a, a child. And um, so she was interested, you know, she needed an abortion to space um, her children. She didn't want to have two very small children and, and not be able to provide for them. And she found herself facing an unexpected pregnancy while she was traveling in the city of Santa Cruz in the, you know, eastern part of Bolivia. And she, so she didn't have social contacts. She didn't have friends to whom she could turn. She didn't know anyone there. Um, uh, she didn't have all of, you know, what we naturally develop in daily life, even where abortion is illegal. Like many of the women that I talked to in La Paz, they would rely on friends or word of mouth or like institutions that they knew of in their city to try to find an abortion provider that might be um, able to offer a safe procedure. And she did not have any of that. Um, she walked into some clinic, you know, uh, or at least a couple of them asking for someone to help her. 
um, where she could find an abortion and note that she's risking not only her life in that circumstance, but also being reported to police because it is illegal. And um, she eventually, you know, some medical student who was in, I think he was a doctor, but he was in this last year of residency, a Western doctor, um, overheard her, you know, asking for this. And he approached her kind of on the side and said, you know, no one's going to do that for you. But, you know, I'm young too. I understand what you're going through and I'm willing to do an abortion for you, but I can't do it here, right? The clinic, if they find out I'm doing it here, I'll get in trouble. So let's go into this hotel together and uh, we'll pretend that we're just boyfriend and girlfriend going to a hotel and um, I'll do the abortion for you there. So she had nowhere else to turn. Um, She had to have this abortion Um, and so she went with this man that she didn't know, um, into a hotel room, pretended to be lovers and they walked in and, um, he gave her, uh, he gave her uh, some medication, uh, Valium, um, more than her body could really safely handle at that time. Um, he performed her abortion on a hotel room bed, which, um, causes significant risk of infection, which can lead to sepsis and death. And then because she was still anesthetized following the abortion, he raped her. And um, there was nothing that she could do. She could not go to police to report this because she had engaged in this so-called illegal activity of having an abortion. And what's worse, you know, because she did have an abortion performed in unhygienic circumstances, she did have an infection. And the only person that she could turn to when she was dealing with that infection um, was the same man who had raped her. and, and this, uh, it's just, it's such a tragedy and it, it breaks my heart. And this is the logical consequence of what happens when states um, criminalize abortion because people are not, uh, people, I'm sure there are safe abortion providers in Santa Cruz, right? And if they were able to advertise their services or, you know, uh, if they were, if they were able to advertise their services, someone like this woman would have had access to a safe abortion. Um, but when it's not, when it's illegal and when it's unregulated and when we rely on the market to essentially like, if a woman has money, she can access a safe abortion if she knows where to go. But if she doesn't, she's in a really difficult circumstance and she's risking her own life, which means she's not going to be there for her children or her families. This is an issue it's not just about women. It's about the entire society. It's about families. It's about, um, you know, national health. And um, so that's the interview that's most sticking out to me right now. And I just, uh, I just would urge people to have compassion. This is not a, just a political issue. This is an issue that real people experience and they go through things that are just tremendous. And, um, and as I mentioned before, you know, the opposite side of that is women are not only victims, like people have gone to remarkable lengths to try to push for change, both individually and collectively. And I I get, I still get a lot of hope from that. So that's one of the reasons I find it so important to continue to talk about these issues. Thank you so much for sharing that story. That is um, a really important story to share, I think, for people to understand um, and, and to contextualize it in the larger power that we have to change things. Um, I think that's, that's really important. So I, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me 
about your work. Um, the last thing I'd like to ask you is, what are your plans for the future? Do you have any projects on the horizon? Oh, um, I do have some thoughts. So at the moment, I'm spending uh, this summer of quarantine <laughs> um, taking a couple of uh, articles um, that I was not able to include in the book, and I'm, I'm publishing them separately. So one of them is sort of a deeper reflection about the methodology of oral history and how it challenges our efforts to or our roles, essentially, as historians. Um, I kind of unpack a couple of interviews that I did with a woman uh, and her daughter, and I talk about <clears throat> some of the issues we've been talking about here, so machismo, but I also go far more into depth about silence and stigma around sexuality, um, and I talk about how historians might best um, kind of address how we approach these themes in our, in, in doing oral interviews and where our responsibilities lie. And then the second article that I'm preparing is about changes in the ways that women located abortion providers in the years following the democratic opening. Um, in terms of future projects, I do want to continue to work in La Paz and El Alto. I see a lot of need to talk about some of these issues there, but I, I would see myself, you know, in just in the very early stages of considering a project there focusing on um, sexual violence and, um, and machismo and, um, and perhaps uh, getting some men's voices included. Um, because, you know, as you'll know from my book, most of the individuals I interview there besides folks from medical sectors are, are women. And I think that uh, men need to be heard in this conversation too. So th those are some of my future plans. That, that sounds great. I really look forward to reading and maybe talking to you about those future projects. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really great to be here. 